What did you have for lunch today, Bones? I haven't seen Richard Kimball. <laughs> That's not what I asked, sir. Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. For those of you just joining us, um, this is Be Real Guys. I'm Noah, and Chance, say your name. Hello, I am Chance. You're damn right you are. Mm. And... Uh, we're, uh, we do, we do a podcast, uh, about movies, um, and whether we liked them or we didn't like them. Um, and then we like yell at each other because like we t- we typically have differing opinions about the quality of film. And, um, that's, I guess the hook for the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're important because we have opinions, right? Right. That would be our our ethos, our, our platform, <laughs> if you will, is that we have people we know people with ears. Um and we also we also watch a lot of movies, often the same ones, over and over again for no real reason <laughs> other than like when a situation almost exactly like this is presented. Do we want to tell them about the uh our criteria for rating movies real quick? Yeah, we rent, rate them on... Well, you tell them about the, the gradients, and I'll tell them the examples. Okay, cool. Um, so there's two qualifiers. The first one refers to technical quality. The second one refers to entertainment and watchability. So a good, good movie would be like... Uh, the Departed. And a good, bad movie would be like... Um... Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream. And a bad, good movie. Would be um, Executive Decision. (laughs) And lastly, a bad, bad movie would be like... Oh, like, um, you know, like White Chicks. There you have it. Yeah, so that's... uh, We're going to rate all three of the movies we talk about tonight. And they all have one linking thematic or genre element, typically. That's what we do. Or like some sort of you know, context within a time period or the way they were, they came to fruition like last week. Um, so yeah, this week we decided to do, uh, we, we've got a, we've got a falsely (laughs) accused man coming through here. (laughs) I was, I know that's what it says on our Google doc where we plan these, but it wasn't until I was to that part of the negotiator that I realized what an obscure reference that is and how it should not be the title <laughs> of this episode. It's it's not that obscure of a reference, but before I'll... we get into the movies too much, so this week we did movies where it's about somebody who has been falsely accused of a crime and they have to prove their innocence. Yeah, they're all thrillers. They're all thrillers. Uh, thrillers of the highest order. Um, mm. And so the movies we picked this week were Gone Girl, uh, the Fugitive, and The Negotiator. And I, I feel yeah. like we should do them in that order, if you don't mind. That's fine. Because, like, Gone Girl's the new one. The Fugitive is definitely, like, canon for thrillers. And oh, yeah. The Negotiator is a movie you and I have both seen. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie that will be on TNT any given night of the week. Or it, actually, it would have been on TNT ten years ago, any given right. night of the week. It was definitely... Um, you know, one of the highlights in the VHS thriller section at like West Coast Video once upon a time. But that's basically where it's it's critical, um, you know, acclaim ended. Um, so anyway, before we start, can I read the word from our sponsor, Chance? Please do. Guys is brought to you today by the law offices of Bolt and Bolt, serving only the highest profile criminals in the greater America area since, you know, some reputable amount of time. Has your psychopathic wife gone to great lengths to make it look as though you've murdered her on the morning of your fifth anniversary? Has she literally left envelopes with the word clue on them to make sure the police think you're a cold blooded killer? Are the Nancy Grace types really pushing for the death penalty before you've even been arrested by painting you as not only a killer, but a deviant of society, insinuating you've cheated on your marriage with your twin sister? 
If you found yourself really counting on your 20-something mistress not giving you up as your main legal defense, then boy, do we have the lawyer for you. Bold, stylish, irreverent, and oddly approachable in that either-way-I'm-getting-paid kind of way, Tanner Bolt is the go-to guy for keeping the most heinous criminals on the street. And even if you're already hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, due to the motive your wife is planted on you pretty easily, there's a payment plan for you. Take the Nick Dunn level, for example. For one easy payment of $100,000 as a retainer for both services, you'll not only get to the address of your wife's alleged rapist local bar, but a spot on a long-form news broadcast hosted by Sella Ward, who I thought was good and dead after watching The Fugitive, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> And if you act in the next two scenes, Tanner will even include the price of the gummy bears he'll throw at you if you seem disingenuous. Tanner Bolt. If his whip-smart, though ultimately inappropriate, observations about your immediate family aren't enough to win you over, perhaps it's the distracting realization that you know exactly what this guy looks like as an old woman. And that, of course, brings us to Gone Girl. The 2014 film adaptation of the best-selling Gillian Flynn novel, directed right. by David Fincher and uh, Tanner Bolt, who you were referring to, is played incredibly oh, by yeah. Tyler Perry. Absolutely. Did you say Ben Affleck's in this movie? I did not yet. Ben Affleck's in this movie. Uh, Rosamund Pike is in this movie. Um, and yep. the cultural relevance for this movie is the fact that it just landed on HBO Go. So it's almost like it was just released on video or something. Everyone told us and told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife, Amy Elliott Dunn, disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. So basically this guy, Nick Dunn, who you mentioned, played by Ben Affleck, lives in Missouri, with his, a small town, Missouri, with his wife of five years, they've moved down from New York to take care of Nick's ailing and dead uh, mom. They live; they're in a an ailing marriage, I would say, as told through the diary of his wife, Amy. Because that's kind of how the it's sort of hard to explain how this movie like moves itself along well, it's, before the, yeah, well, before much the like turn. the book, and it is very literary, I would say. Much like the book, yes. it's told in this, like, dual narrative. So the first, like, first third of the movie is present in Nick's story, and he's sort of the focal point. And the other sort of yeah. narrator is the wife, and she's telling in flashbacks through, you see, like, her writing these diary entries, like, how her and Nick came to both meet, get married, and then ultimately, like, end up in you know, whatever the situation is that they're in. And so Nick yep. comes home uh, on the morning of the, the opening scene and finds that there's something afoot here because, like, the house, like, the door is wide open and, like, there's broken glass and there may be some blood spattering going on. Um, yep. And the wife's gone. So right. that's, she's the gone girl, the titular gone girl. Yeah, and that kind of sets us on our way uh, into an investigation of the crime scene and steadily of Nick, the presumption being for, uh, what, the first, like, hour or so that, like, he definitely did it. Right. Um, but, but wait, <laughs> but hold on. Um, I don't know. Do we want to go that far into it? Obviously, we're going to talk about the turn in the right. movie. Well, but let's, let's do we want start, to talk about it now, or should we talk about the movie? Let's start about the, with the beginning of this movie. And I think okay. because, like, when I criticize this movie, well, first off, this is a really long movie. Oh, it's so long. It's uh, very long. Two and a half hours. It's good, but it's very long, and it's it's worth its its length. But at the same time, I feel like the first fifteen minutes of this movie. I couldn't understand a goddamn thing anyone was saying because they were talking so fast. <laughs> well, I think I think that's a great point, and I would just say that the first fifteen minutes are exhibit A for this. It's also an extremely uneven movie, right. I would say. And part of the reason that Rosamund Pike is so good is that she just bites into this, like, literary, sometimes theatrical dialogue with that deep voice of hers, and it's just great. Oh, sure. And then other, other characters, like Ben Affleck a lot of times, 
when he's bantering with his sister are just, they're getting run over by it. We could have had this fight four hours ago. I'm late. I didn't know it was gonna be a fight. You really wanna be the couple that has a baby to save their marriage? Save? I, reboot, retool, rekindle, whatever. And you're gonna walk out yeah. there now? I, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a hefty, it's a hefty movie. And apparently this is the like trimmest version that they could come up with. Apparently the shooting script was like closer to three hours of pages. Wow. So it's tough to say like where this bad boy would have ended up, but you do have, as it starts to get better, um, right. You Fincher is so good. If you go back through his filmography, um, I know this is like a general way of putting it, but the feeling that something is like a foot, like all is not as it seems, um, is something that like, he's basically done in every movie he's ever made. (laughs) And so with his sort of like that camera of his, that's so nervous. And yet like you have the feeling that like, like some sort of someone who's been working for years to kind of like white knuckle their like neuroses and their terror into like a pretty beautiful, like, like momentum making style. Mm -hmm. Like this movie, this movie really benefits from that in the setup, I would say. Well, I think this is an interesting movie in Fincher's oeuvre um, because it's sort of a return to form. Like they sort of started giving Fincher like with, um, with social network and like Benjamin Button, they started to give him like real movies to direct as opposed to just like horrifying thrillers. Well, that's true. But the one he did right before this was dragon tattoo was the closest one to this one. Interesting. No, but I think this one is such a return to form that I feel like Fincher didn't know like how to start. That might be true. Yeah. Or at least, um, or maybe a, it's, a it's return the, to the form of things like Fight Club and the game and shit, like big conspiracy shit. Right. Well, because like the what you need to buy into with those movies is like pretty big. Like, oh, this guy can't sleep. You know, like oh, there's you know, there's a certain darkness to Seven, which makes it like not like super hard realism to me. Right. But this one, like, what you have to buy into is like here's a pretty average, if not declining, suburban town. Here we go. I would agree, but I would say one of the things that is never resolved over the course of this two-and-a-half-hour movie, and one of the things that I ultimately don't like about it, is there are just too many different, like, tones, like, weaving in and out of each other that don't... Like, it's part... Like, it's very unclear whether you're supposed to take the whole thing as realism. It's last, it's Coda, that, like, that Fincher Coda that he needs to stop doing um, is, like, 20 minutes of weird black comedy. Um, but it's all, it's all like, sort of heightened, too, to, like, this point where you don't... Which can be explained through the fact that, you, that you're supposed to have this kind of, like, outsiders-mediated perception of Nick, and you're also getting it through Amy's uh, diary entries, which mm-hmm. are very fallible, we find out. Right. Um, well, that's the but, weird thing about seeing this, because uh, we should say that it's based on the huge best-selling 2012 book of the same name. Yes. And the book was like a huge, I mean, it was a huge sort of like game-changer in its own right, because of this like unreliable narrator, but I feel like right. it's already a pretty weird foot to be on in film because if you yes. realize like about a third way through the movie and not to spoil too much about it, but a third way through the movie, you realize that you don't know as much as you did about Ben Affleck and you then really don't know anything about him. Right. So it's weird and to like have a me. protagonist who you know, you realize you know nothing about. Well, oh, yeah. And then like, it's not quite clear who your protagonist is the turn comes really can we can we talk about the turn or do you not want to i would love to talk about the turn i'm always trying to make turns the big twist of the movie though is like after the first third so you're so if even if you don't see it coming you don't or you just don't know from having heard about the book um or whatever it happens really soon and you're sort of left with like this giant open air feeling um which is that basically, yes, Amy has is alive, and she has framed him for her 
murder. Right. And then you begin to follow her narrative in real time, but slightly behind where Ben Affleck is because you're actually catching up to the present through her past about what happened after they came to the, uh, the back to the where he came back to the house to find her missing. Right. And you find out also that the diary, the device through which you've seen everything and like has been the ground that you have to stand on was all written as part of the framing in like not one sitting, but like in one fell swoop, like it is not chronologically accurate. Right. And well, then my question too was like how much of it was real and how much of it wasn't like, are we supposed to believe that Ben Affleck pushed her at that scene when he didn't want to have kids? That's the question. See, and that's like where it leaves us on a weird ground, I think filmically, because there's no indicators that that's fiction. Let me ask you this. Did you read the book before you saw the movie? No, I've actually never read the book. Interesting, because I had read the book, so I knew exactly what was coming. Sure. So it like wasn't that hard to swallow. But I also mm-hmm. found, unfortunately, I mean, and we'll get to like what we think it is in a second. Um, but ultimately, like that's what I thought the flaw in the movie was that because I knew what the twists were, like I, I wasn't that interested. Right. <laughs> sure. You know, because the movie, I mean, it has some like really entertaining moments to it. And like you said, like it becomes sort of humorous after the beginning. For sure. With the introduction of Tyler Perry, because if I can just say real quick, because of that uneven tone, it's almost like everyone just gets to pick their own thing. This movie is so bizarre at times. And it seems like Tyler Perry is the one who is like most, I mean, he's, yes, he's playing the like Johnny Cochran. Right. um, sort of like char- like smooth talking lawyer character with with no moral code um but it's he is so supremely like he waltzes into this movie and he's just like oh i see that uh we can all pretty much do whatever we want huh like oh, i'm yeah. definitely going to do whatever i want <laughs> like it's amazing right um, like tyler perry left to his own devices um you know within the constructs of like a major hollywood film are pretty interesting to watch yeah so, okay, so then let me ask you then, mm-hmm. um, because you also have the book for context, yeah. which um, does the turn in the movie, does does the several minute Amy monologue for why she did this, does it work for you? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the sort of good things and bad things about this book being adapted by its author. Um mm-hmm is the fact that in the book you, I mean, you're reading a book, so you can kind of do different things you can do than with a movie. But like in the book, when it finally breaks that, like that wall and you realize that Amy's been lying to you and you've been reading these lie journal things. Yeah. um, She then gives you like a good 20 page section. I think if I'm remembering correctly, where she, she fills you in on what has happened and that's fine because you're interested in seeing how you've been duped. And that's why I think that it really hangs in that monologue. Like if you buy into that monologue, that if whether or not you're going to hang with the rest of this movie and because it works so well in the book, I think she sort of hangs a little bit too much on the cool girl monologue that was definitely had like, it definitely had way more teeth in the book. Mm-hmm. And then, which I think the well, can I can I maybe disagree with you on something, Chance? Sure. What I think the biggest problem with this movie is that you can't buy into Amy, and I think you can't buy into Amy because of the miscast of Rosamund Pike. Wow. Okay. Why? How? I think that because in the. In the book, you're reading this, like, very, like, lovey-dovey, like, I just met a boy kind of, like, diary. And it's a, it's written by, like, a very warm person. But Rosamund Pike was never, like, terribly warm in this movie. So, like, the turn <laughs> no. is the turn is never that surprising. You know? Yeah. I thought, well, because, like, originally Reese Witherspoon brought, uh, bought this property That's and right. was going to yep. do it herself. And I thought she would have been, like, ideal in this movie because you know her from like kind of warmer roles. So you're going Mm -hmm. in thinking she's playing the good girl and you'll hate Ben Affleck for like killing her. And then fuck, she's been setting him up. What do we feel about anything? But I feel like Rosamund Pike has always played like a very cool, very like emotionless person. So I like just, I always knew that she 
and I had also read the book, but she never convinced me that like she was the victim. No, I think that's a great point because like Rosamund Pike is very good at sinking her teeth into the psychopathia of it. Right. But you're you're totally right. In the setup, like you always feel like she is like ten steps ahead of him. Um, yeah. In like a scary way. So no, I I buy that a hundred percent. Well, I just feel like it doesn't give you also sympathy for for Ben Affleck because you, he's supposed to have this great marriage and then he has his own problems and stuff like that. But like with the two of them, it's like, dude, you married a psycho. Like, of course, psycho things are starting to happen. I will practice believing my husband loves me, but I could be wrong. You ever seen that guy in the glasses before? Amy is the kind of girl who attracts admirers. Whoever took her is bound to bring her back. I'm hoping you can tell me what this means. You want to solve Amy's treasure hunt? I'm not sold on why she would do all this, frankly. I know that's very simple. Right. But, like, then, but because I don't buy it, like, the last two hours just, like, kind of crashed down in, like, a cacophony of interesting things. Right. But, like... Like, I just don't know why you would do this, Amy. And so, like, what am I left to do but kind of, like, sit by? Right. Well, I, I sort of thought the opposite was true in that you could have lopped off the first 35 minutes and started with her in the monologue, and it would be way better movie. Oh, I think that that's probably true. I mean, I Like, you don't even need too. the turn. I feel like watching Rosamund Pike is, like, a, this psychopath, like, sort of play this cat and mouse game with all the men she comes in contact with, like pretty interesting. My other big problem with this movie, um, and I don't want to get into it a whole bunch because a lot of people have written about it much better than I can put it, but like I'm just hit over the head with it. Like ev- like the first time I saw it and this time is just that I think it's like politics are kind of gross. Like I think that it's like it's thriller turn onto the woman who like uses like victimization, like sexual victimization as like her own thing. Like horrible like rape culture and like victim things that like are not called for to reverse and like are other you thrillers saying, don't are you saying this movie makes the argument to men that like if a woman says something like that she's probably just trying to frame you for her murder or something no I'm not saying that because I don't think that the text doesn't like the this does not feel like written from like from a place of like misogyny or anything like that but like I we think would hope that the, not no, I, I doesn't see, it doesn't feel that way to me, but the text itself in search of a device, I think, is irresponsible. But, like, she's not supposed to be, like, the average woman. This is, like, this is a woman who is just, a, like, she's evil. <laughs> like, of course she's doing that, bad things. She's playing the system to her advantage. Like, that's, that's the whole tr- point of the movie. <laughs> empathy. Amy lost a lot of blood in there. Then somebody mopped it up. Why do they mop up the blood if they're trying to stage a crime scene? Whatever they found, I think it's safe to assume that it's very bad. I'd finally realized I am frightened of my own husband. I well, I think that sort of leads us to... Oh, well, before we get into the ratings, I just want to do, like, just a big round of applause for, like, the supporting cast of this movie, and they are doing great. Like, we already yes. talked about Tyler Perry, but um, the two cops... Patrick Fugit, welcome back, Patrick sir. Patrick Fugit from um, that, Almost Famous, that, Almost Famous, and um, the woman she's going to be on uh, uh, Kim the Dickens. Walking Dead she's sequel. Also great, and she was on House of Cards as well. Um, yep. But there was just such nice rapport between them. Like they go to that like abandoned shopping mall or whatever, and Patrick Fugit's like, "Should we call in for backup?" And she says to him, "I'll protect you." And then they just walk into this like horribly. <laughs> Like derelict mall with people like coming out of the rafters. It's great. Well, like, and th- that's one of the pleasant moments where, like, this actually, as weird and dark as this movie is, it could have been like austere and dark, right? Right. Um, well, and this, see, I feel like if this were to be made into a good thing, it should have been a miniseries. Like, there's there's so much richer detail in the book about like the socioeconomic stuff going on in the town. Oh, sure. And, like, because I was talking with my girlfriend today about this movie after we watched it, and she was deeply disturbed by it. Um, (laughs) She's shaking her head. Um, And 
I was mentioning in the books that like it's such a weirder vibe in the town because you find out in the book that this town really relied on this company that made the blue book test things, the test booklets. Oh, wow. And they go out of business for the green book, but that's made by a different company. So like half the town is unemployed and they live in one of those like quickly thrown up uh like developments of like these McMansions, but they're like mostly empty because it like opened in two thousand eight as the bubble burst. Oh, and so, so that's it's like where a the, really that's weird... where Affleck's thing about the homeless people come in. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So um, chance, I'm gonna go ahead and say that this movie is a good. Wait, hold on. You're good. Are you thinking bad bad for this one? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm thinking good, I'm, bad. I'm going to go with good, bad, too. Yeah. But then I feel like we've only like made fun of the, the reasons that it's not a well-made movie. So it's like weird uh, to say that it's technically quality, but... Yeah, okay, yeah, I know what you mean. But, okay, do, you, do we need to talk more about maybe the watchability of it? Maybe it's bad, it's... good. See, like, what I liked about the movie is that, like, even though I know what's coming and even though... I don't know. It, it wasn't ruined for me because I like never watched the movie in the context of knowing there was going to be a huge twist. Right. I feel like it's pretty watchable, but ultimately like way smarter than it thinks it is. So I'm going to have to go bad. Good. Wait, it's way smarter than it thinks it is or the opposite of that. Oh no, no, no. It, it thinks it's way smarter than it is. Yes. yes. Um, and that's why I think it's no. bad. Good. Cause I think the mess that it is, is entertaining. So I'm I'm still saying I I I would stick with good bad because when I talk about all those like, um, like all of those like political social things that bother me so much about it like I I am putting those like in part on me like I think that's that's like the that's what's coming off the text of the movie um, I don't think it's like necessarily in the construction and I I think that like um, but you just said the movie was all over the, like a mess you, you literally called this movie a mess. It is, um, well, it is kind of a mess. So then what do you like about it? What, uh, I think the performances are really fun. Like, I think it's a because fun Because they're mess, entertaining though. to watch? What you're describing is a good, bad movie. You mean a bad, good movie. Or a bad, good movie. <laughs> um, uh, you're right. Okay, so I guess what I think... What you like about but this I movie don't... are, like, the weird things it incidentally tries to do, or happens that, to do. No, you're right. But but I also don't... I did not enjoy watching it today, and nor did I enjoy watching it the first time. So, so I guess maybe I'm you saying think it's, it's bad, bad, bad. All right, this movie's bad, bad for me. <laughs> On our rating system, Chance says <laughs> that Gone Girl is bad, bad. Yep. It was a real referendum on my intellect and the rating system. <laughs> so that was good. Sometimes like much like the right wing of any political movement, sometimes you need to like really read the lettering of the law to understand what we're trying to do when we establish these rules. Anyway, well, sir, let's get into number two, which is the, the fucking fugitive, the goddamn fugitive. <laughs> I came home, there was a man in my house. He had an artificial arm. Are you saying that I killed my wife? Are you saying that I crushed her skull and that I shot her? If anybody thinks there's going to be a lot of debate about The Fugitive, you're wrong. Because this is one of those movies that... (laughs) You either love or, like, we're not friends. Right. Like, if you're listening to this and you don't love The Fugitive, find like something, something else to do. Right. Like, don't pursue, like, any sort of future, like, liberal arts things. <laughs> well, this 1993 movie is loosely based on, like, a like mid-20th century television show, but I don't think we're really concerned with that, are we? I don't think so, unless you really want to get into the uh, the genesis of this this film project. No, I'm not interested in that. So, The Fugitive, directed by Andrew Davis, starring, and we'll get. Who's I'll, literally I'm gonna, done nothing else. No lie, no lie. I'm going to talk so much about Andrew Davis in a little bit. Like, don't even worry about it. Okay. 
Um, directed by Andrew Davis, stars Harrison Ford as the titular fugitive. We can do that in all three of these movies, can't we? And Tommy Lee. <laughs> I'll let you do it on the negotiator. And Tommy Lee Jones um, as his chief pursuer. Tommy uh, Lee Dr. Jones in one of his finest performances, I'd say. He won Best Supporting Actor for this performance. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in this area. Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Kimball. He's been wrongfully convicted for murdering his wife, who was actually killed by a one-armed man. And he, in this is all in the first, like, eight minutes. Uh, he escapes. Told um, in, like, a really, like, disturbing, yet, like, really watchable montage, basically. Absolutely. The first 14 minutes is, like, avant-garde filmmaking. <laughs> okay, Shh, sort of. Um, we'll get there he, when you're done with uh, your, your excruciating plot here. But he escapes. He escapes bondage when the bus that is taking Tim, taking him to the prison where he will be executed by lethal injection god have mercy on his soul uh the the other inmates that he's with uh stage a coup uh the bus crashes it's hit by a train dr richard kimball becomes the titular fugitive your fugitive's name is dr richard kimball go get him where i would want to start with this one is i think the negotiator not to spoil too much I want to talk about what is good about The Negotiator for what it is. And The Fugitive is the ultimate example of like a big-budget Hollywood movie transcending what it is. Like, it, it is... Oh, yeah, it, despite its best efforts. It is like a 90s action movie with guns and yelling and jumping off of tall things. Um, right. But it is so good um, for so many little reasons. They crashed a train into a bus with Harrison Ford jumping off of it without CGI at all. Yeah, in real they life they did that. And then the part where the train actually chases him like was not scripted. Like the train no. jumped the tracks unexpectedly and Harrison Ford had to run away with, from it and they caught it on film. I watched the DVD extras today. They scouted five states set up like 20 cameras and they were prepared for like half of them to be destroyed by the crashing train <laughs> and then just rolled fucking camera on this movie and but there are so many good things where like if you listen to Harrison Ford talk about this movie too he just talks about how like difficult like it was it sounded like it might have been like kind of a bad experience for him because all the places in which this movie could have sort of like veered to center and just been like a normal sort of poofy 90s action movie they didn't do it they did things like no tommy lee jones has to run through through the pigeons on his way to the parade or Harrison Ford has to actually swim in this ice cold February river for like hours at a time. It's crazy. Right. The amount of like detail that goes it's into the this kind movie. of filmmaking that like, you remember when Actors that guy, hate? uh, well, it's the kind of filmmaking that killed that guy, uh, Vic Morrow's in Who's the that? twilight zone movie where he got cut in half by a helicopter. Oh, whoops. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's definitely like gorilla, for for a Hollywood movie, like pretty gorilla, this movie. And I think I think the synthesis of big and small in this movie to me are just great because it is it adores its overhead city shots of Chicago and like giant dams and these horrible little like Illinois towns like uh like you know, a hundred miles outside of Chicago. But then mm-hmm. it like takes you inside like truck stop bathrooms and like well, that's, like, what I love about it is this movie, like, just, it just, like, had, like, a loose script, and they just, like, turned on the camera, and they oh, just no, said... no, stop! They did, well, that's what you, that's the argument you were saying, is that, like, no, there's I'm a certain level of, to... like, fuck it, that, like, this movie has, that's just so, and it takes itself so seriously, and it works, and that's, like, one of those classic, like, action movie things where, like, everyone bought in at the right amount on every yeah. level... 
and everyone's just super happy to be there, even though, like, things might be... Did you know that Harrison Ford, like, injured his knee in the beginning of this movie and, like, didn't go to the doctor because he wanted to keep the limp throughout? Like, that's the kind of, like, effort that I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, that's... that's Yeah. Like, I feel like we're sort of talking about the same thing, but the, like, the grit... Like, it's like people who are, like, trying to pass their college film class like we need to get this done and like we should not stop for any reason and we'll get extra we'll get extra credit (laughs) if if we go deep inside the basement of that polish like south side like wintry home and spend a long time there like they just did things they didn't have to do and like there was a certain level of fuck it but there was also a certain level of like (sighs) very like effortful like detail right but effortful with like no real like I don't think bigger purpose, at least that was like, you know, like visible to me, which I think is what makes it like such, such a great piece of film is because like, there's a certain, like it, it strays from the formula in ways that are interesting just because it like kind of forgets to do it sometimes, which I think is amazing, but yeah. You know? Okay. But yeah, this movie like went through like six directors and there's, did you notice there's six editors on this movie? Apparently they were editing this movie as they went. Like they (laughs) gave, they gave everybody like a five minute strand of dailies or something. And they like put this thing together as they went. Hey, can I read the the first name of the six? I promise it'll be worth it. Go for it. The first names are Dennis, David, Dean, Don, Dick, and Dov. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thanks, Wikipedia. Um, oh my God! Yeah, and Tommy Lee Jones gives like the performance of a lifetime, which really carries this movie too. Mm-hmm. Like he's this guy who like just manages to keep this like team of wisecracking, overworked, underpaid FBI or like U.S. Marshals uh, together through like insults and like weird like father things going on, which I really liked. Yes. And, it like works and it's super entertaining to watch and it's so great in comparison to how serious like Harrison Ford is on screen because he has to be. And this is just a guy's day at the office, which is super funny to watch. Give me your favorite Tommy Lee U.S. Marshals banter. Oof, you go first. Okay, my favorite by far and... Shout out to Gone Girl because she also used the phrase "it's hinky," meaning it's weird or it's strange. When they're in the lobby of of the prison, like one of the U.S. Marshals with the mustache is just like, you know, I don't like this, Sam. Like it's hinky, and he's just like, hinky, hinky, Biggs. What does that mean? And he's just like, you know, weird, strange. He's like, listen, I don't want you guys using words that don't have any meaning. And then he goes upstairs, and Biggs is like, bullshit. What about bullshit, Sam? Um, Sarah found that very unamusing when we watched it today, but I was all in. Oh, I really liked when he's like going over the radio, like giving people orders and he's like, and Noah, don't let them give you any shit about your ponytail. (laughs) That's so great. Oh, that was a great one. He doesn't bargain. He does not. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what what are you doing? Thinking? Well, pick me up one of those donuts with all the sprinkles on top and a cup of coffee, would you? Oh, my God. He's so (laughs) But also, like, isn't it a weirdly amazing feat that, like, a supporting cast with that many people, like, each of those no-name marshals gets to have their little moment with him? Okay, we're going to start right there. I want phone taps. We're going to start with his lawyer first. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're never going to get that. You call Judge Rubin. You tell him I want a whole bunch of phone taps. Why are you and I'll me? call him up later what? and tell him on who if I'm in a good Why mood. Why don't you yell at her sometime? Sam. What? Atta boy. We just got a call from Harris Community Hospital. The wounded guard swears he saw Kimball right outside the emergency room. Well, that's hot. And an ambulance is missing. Where the hell's he going in an ambulance? Is this movie weirdly underrated? Yes. I, I think, think it's so one too. of the best. I think it's one of the best. Like, if you want to tell me what a, the definition of a thriller is, like, this is the movie that should be noted because I it's just—he's constantly like high stakes on the run. Like, yes. My question about this movie is: Why did Andrew Davis end up not doing anything good ever again? This is a great point. Thank you. This is what I wanted to talk about. I. 
just I kind of don't think that he understood how important the script was that uh, David Twohe, Jeb Stewart's script was so important to making it good. Because if you watch, um, have you ever watched Chain Reaction? I sure haven't. Wait, which one's that? That's the Keanu Reeves, Morgan no, Freeman science movie. No, he stop. employs, he employs the exact same filmmaking techniques in Chicago and with one of those same cops who it's unclear whether was an actor or a cop first, um, in that move in that movie, like it's one of those weird things where I'm, you know, from the outside, you want to be like a director does this and takes on these certain kind of movies. And I don't just don't think that Andrew Davis knows what a good script is. Um, he right. took, Interesting. and he took the same approach to, have you seen a perfect murder with that? Michael oh, Douglas? I actually kind of like that movie. I do. I do too. I think it's pretty compelling. But, like, they are all the exact same style of, like, um, like really ambitious overhead shot that's not easy to get and then go inside a small urban space. Like, he does all of that. Like, but the technique doesn't work because the script isn't mm-hmm. good. Um, and so, yeah, he, like, this was, like, his breakout movie, and he, no, never made anything good ever again. And I've and watched all of it. he stopped with The Guardian, didn't he? Yeah, that Ashton Kutcher, uh, Kevin Costner lifeguard movie. Let me run this one by you. Has Harrison Ford ever been asked to do this much in a movie? Is this the most he's ever had to perform? You mean in a, like emotionally? Yeah. Um, definitely. Well, didn't this movie kind of like lead him down a path of like more serious sort of drama? Like, I don't think he ever championed, like, a really big-name franchise ever again, like, after this movie. He really just well, descended into more dramas, I'd say. Yeah. He, um, this is post-Star Wars. This is post-Indiana um, Jones. Like, yeah. this was his last sort of big action movie before he, like, sort of went in the six days, seven nights sort of direction. Well, I mean, he did Clear and Present Danger and then did Air Force One. Um, but Air Force but yeah. One was kind of like he was the ironic hero returning to, you know, an action crisis. Maybe you're right. Well, how about this? What I, what I would say and what I think that this movie excellently plays with how many shots it features of Harrison Ford running into the camera to show the desperation of chase and pursuit is that this led him down a road of being a not cool, but completely isolated and desperate singular hero. Um, all the movies after this put him in over his head, but not really in a charming way, kind of in a scary way. Cause that's what clear and present danger is. That's what air force one is. Uh, firewall is like that. Let's um, not discuss firewall. But Harrison Ford is so like unique in his just like overall like unassuming manliness. And I was reading an interesting article um, this week about how there is no like today is Harrison Ford, and they tried to say that like they're because they're trying to. The question was how they were going to reboot the Indiana Jones franchise now that Shia LaBeouf isn't going to do it, and they were saying that like there is no today's Harrison Ford, and everything that anyone could think of was like way out of the like age limit that when Indiana Jones was originally filmed. So, whenever I watch a really good Harrison Ford performance, like I can't help but think about him, right? And he's like this guy who barely wanted to be an actor and mostly wanted to fly dangerous planes and be a carpenter. And he was like sort of this guy who like, if you could get him on set for your movie, he was going to go all out for you in like a way that didn't necessarily indicated he liked you, but just that like he cared about, you know. He's not a celebrity. He's an actor. And that's why he's so interesting. So I'm going to give this movie like a glowing good good in so much as it's probably like in my in Noah Ballard's top 15. 
I would say exactly the same. I've watched this. This is top 15, like, most viewed material for me. Like, probably to the point where we shouldn't have reviewed it, but yeah. it's okay. Well, we, we didn't, we don't so, so much review movies. Either we celebrate what's good about them or we mercilessly tear them apart. Yep. So. Or we're just confused, like I was, about Gone Girl. Right. Um, okay. Shall we? Shall we dive headfirst into God, this is this is the one I've been most excited to discuss, so in which we are talking about The Negotiator, a movie that I think we've danced towards in our friendship for possibly maybe even the day we met. You should we talk about the time that we watched this together? Give people we, a little snapshot into that beloved ethos you crave so much. Yeah, we watched it during the lost summer, buddy. Oh, I'm oh, the lost summer. That was like the peak. Yeah, you, That's when I knew you were for life, Chance. Because I kept driving down to Lincoln over over again to like help you to help me wash my dishes. And it was it was like a college summer. It was great, and we watched movies together. So we watched this movie together during the lost summer. Um, yep. And what did you think of it? Do you remember what you thought of it initially when we were watching it in my apartment on Fourteenth and E in Lincoln, Nebraska? Well, this was a movie I'd seen several times before because it was like a oh. classic. It was a classic basic so, cable I'm sorry. movie. We just got together with the sole purpose of watching a movie we'd both already seen several times. <laughs> yes, which Perfect. is like why we're here today. <laughs> right. Daddy, would you relax a little bit? I'm just... relaxed. I'm very fucking relaxed. But let me give you some advice. Never say no to a hostage taker. It's in the manual. Now, are, are you going to tell me no again? No, I'm not. No, at, wrong answer. Eliminate no vocabulary, Polly. Never use no, don't, won't, or can't. All right? It eliminates options. The only option that leaves is to shoot someone. Understand? Uh, yes. Yes, yes good. See, yes is good. Today we're talking about 1998's The Negotiator, which is a movie starring Sam Jackson as... In the titular a, role as The Negotiator. <laughs> There she is. Sam Jackson plays Danny Roman, who's the hero of the moment after he solves this hostage crisis in the prologue of the movie. His partner, Nate, comes to him with, this is another Chicago movie, by the way, with another internal CPD scandal where people are stealing money from the police disability fund. And he's saying, like, hey, man, I'm just really worried about this. Like, I have an informant. I need to talk to you. Uh, his partner gets like killed right away, and Danny is blamed for it. There is perhaps some evidence planted, and Danny becomes increasingly desperate to the point where he goes up to the CPD Internal Affairs Office in the city administration building, and he very quickly takes hostage uh, a very important man, a man you need to know as Nebaum. Oh my God, <laughs> um, we're, about, we're gonna say a lot. We're gonna say a lot about Nebaum. Um, he was the director of internal affairs and like all the people in his office, his secretary, this like Paul street informant. Yeah, that's, that's Paul. Um, and basically it's a, it's kind of a classic, shall we say like tables are turned movie, like, uh, like government web encoder now has to hack in like, and this is the hostage negotiator is now the hostage taker. Right. And, uh, you know, he goes up against all these basically identical <laughs> bureaucratic militaristic cops, uh, calls in Kevin Spacey, who he's only worked with once. Who's well, that's, basically the, like a yeah. str- that's the great hook of the movie is that once they lose their negotiator, they then have to find a new one mm-hmm. to keep the movie's title making sense. Right. And they call in Kevin Spacey. Yes. And so, but yeah, so basically Sam Jackson is trying to prove his innocence and investigate from a skyscraping floor of the uh, of that building while he's trying to be talked down at the same time, which right. uh, is pretty compelling. It's interesting, yeah. And yeah, he needs to prove that he didn't kill Nate and that he has not been stealing from the fund. Which, sure, that's a right. that's those are those are good stakes to start any action movie. That's a great, I love the tone of you saying that, because here's what I think is so good about this movie. The plot with regard to the disability fund and who is whose informant 
is impressively complex for a movie that really does not need it. Because, right. like, th- that's why this is, like, a classic TNT movie. You can tune in really at any 15-minute increment and, and, like, you will and understand instantly what's understand going what's going on. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Well, that's what's so interesting about this movie is because, like, they spend so much time on, like, this informant and, like, proving this thing. And I won't spoil the ending, but it none of it ends up really mattering or being real. Not at all. Like, that's the – I think one of the best things about this movie is it manages to sustain stakes, like, without actually, like, coming to any meaningful ending. <laughs> that's really true. Uh, I yep. mean – well, that's what I think. I mean, it's, it has a similar flourish. Well, you're you're coming from F. Gary Gray here, who did before this what? His only Friday big movie, was his first movie. His only big movie was really Friday before this, wasn't it? Yep, it was. And he went on to do Italian Job, Be Cool, and Straight Outta Compton, which I think we're gonna watch. But Friday was his only big one before this. Right, and I feel like he's also just like going for broke, much as the way the the negotiators crew did. Yeah. But I just think the results are just in this one so much more bizarre and like, I don't know if like good, but we'll get there. Sam Jackson, everyone knows, of course, but he's mostly known, I would say, as a either funny or adrenaline shot of a supporting character in some of his most memorable roles. Like if you actually if you actually look at the movies in which he was the expressed lead actor, there aren't that many. But the mm-hmm. ones in which he is are all based on sort of this one Sam Jackson trick he has, which is playing the most desperate of men back into a corner, which is thinking about a t- time to kill or changing lanes. Like he kind of has this one note where it's just like, I have uh-huh. nothing left. And oh, I'm changing happy. lanes is such a heartbreaking movie. It really is, but it's just like I have nothing left, and I'm I'm happy to kind of whisper and scream about that in a pretty compelling way. But he hasn't been given that many shots at it because he also he's the sort of dude who's like way older than you think. The other like the funny thing about watching this movie is that that red sort of Malcolm hair that he has is oh, very yeah, fake. That, that like orange wig he's wearing, right. Oh my god! I th- I didn't know if you were going to reference that. It's super. It's a great thing. He literally. Well, my favorite part about the character arc, if we can talk about that. So you basically have this guy who's in the top of the world, new wife, doing well at work, suddenly is uh, about to be arrested for murder, and even his lawyer's like, "Take the deal, Danny." Like it's like I didn't do it. Like what's why is the why is the lawyer so mad? That's a great question. Right. I think we need to address it at some point. We don't have to. For sure. Um, but then yeah, he then has to literally defend himself with his marksman skills for the next two hours of this movie, and right. by his like negotiating prowess just to stay alive. Let's get to the weird sort of. I don't want to give away too much of the ending because I feel like. I'm going to make the case that this is an underrated movie and should be watched more for, That's true. for reasons. Um, but like this police office is like particularly like corrupt. Yes. Which I think is like a pretty, I don't know. That's why I think this movie lands kind of strangely. I actually think it's really interesting to compare this movie to the fugitive. It's like, it's as if this movie were about those like nepotistic horrible cops who were chasing down Kimball but like the movie was centered on them instead of just like peripheral sequences right in its uh, in its want to give us like a secret sort of twist ending of who the bad guy is it like gets so obsessed with that that the situation it has to create to make it that way is like pretty unbelievable it kind well, of unraveled for me at the end. Especially did it unravel. F- yeah, keep going. Did it unravel for you? Because I'll explain how it unraveled for me. We ta- I praised the fugitive earlier for giving each of the like it was crazy to me how it gave six minor characters whose names you'll never remember sort of their own thing, and I think 
if you were sort of like 75% watching this movie, I'll throw out the name Ron Rifkin if that means anything to you. He got dangled by his shoes in L.A. Confidential outside of a building. Um, he's, he's great in roles like this. Do, I don't know. You can disagree if you want, but I felt like in a way all of the non-spacey Jackson cops were so samey that by the time we got to who the bad guy was, it was just like, oh, so it was one of those five identical guys? Right. Well, I think that's the thing was what I'm getting to is the idea that it's like, oh, we got to end this movie in some way. Um, Well, those three guys who have been in some, like, establishing shots, we've seen them enough, right? Why don't we make them (laughs) characters now? And suddenly they are, and you're like, oh, what? Because then, well, I don't want to get into the climactic scene, but you sort of, like, have to know them very well, but, like, for only about 90 seconds. We need to reopen negotiations. I'm sorry, you want something from me? I want the electricity turned back on. You you want something from me? Can I... Can I go to my, um, I have an overarching theory about these movies. Let's hear it. More so on Fugitive and Negotiator because Gone Girl strays into weirdness. But I think the interesting thing about mostly knowing that your protagonist is innocent is sort of this test of the legal and justice system in like sort of a backward way to like, see if they can truly execute what's supposed to be their mission, like Mm. in a sort of like in a humanistic fashion and whether they will consider the facts and actually investigate as they're supposed to, or whether they'll just do the easy thing, which in all three of these is just sort of like verge toward like militarization and just like annihilating the person they assume to be guilty Um, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is really the point of these movies, but I think it is one of the resonances of like turning like the innocent into the isolated guilty perspective is seeing if like this system that we all sort of nominally trust will actually do its job. And the frightening thing in all three is when it won't. Mm, So that's what I'd say. Interesting. See, I thought like the, the hanging question for me, I mean, if we're, because we typically ask a question about all three of the movies is who did you root for the most? Oh, interesting. From movie to movie? Yeah. I rooted for Harrison definitely the most, I think. I would agree. um, That's only because it's like a slightly better movie. I I feel like that's the funny thing. Negotiator and Fugitive are like fairly similar, and Gone Girl is like far weirder. If you would have asked me who I rooted for in that movie, in some like crazy way I would have said the small town police detective because she seemed like the only one who was like really like approaching this with a straight edge. But yeah. You're lying. And I know you're lying. Oh, you know it, huh? Well, you read my mind, Roman, is that it? No, I'm not. I'm reading your eyes. The eyes can't lie. Didn't you know what I was doing? A quick lesson in lying. See, this is what us real cops do. We study liars. What else do I love about The Negotiator? Other than just, like, the (laughs) incredible, like, weird, sort of, like, Republican change of heart that, um, (laughs) that, uh, Beck, played by, uh, David Morse, goes through, like, throughout this film. Like, he fucking hates Roman. Like, from Was was this your first David Morse? And this might have been my my uh, inaugural Morse, yeah. Mine too. Right. But so he hates him, and then like wants to kill him up until the last moment when he realizes, literally, he, he everything he knew was wrong about him, and <clears throat> he immediately, unapologetically changes tune and decides that this guy's all right, and expresses it in one line where he looks out <laughs> into all these people staring at like the scene that's just unfolded, the climactic scene, and he goes, we've got an injured cop coming through. We've got an injured cop here. And it's like, that's, that's how we know that this movie has come to an end. Ratings. Shall we rate The Negotiator? The Negotiator, for me... And I feel like I, if we agree, I can use it in the future as the ultimate bad good movie. 
Oh, interesting. I feel like it's... I was going to say... I was gonna say a soft good good for what it is. Oh really? That's cute. Yeah, but I agree. <laughs> it is cute. That's a cute like rating I, to give to this movie. That's actually <laughs> bad good. They hear a voice in the hall outside and hope that it just passes by. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end. <laughs> Thank God. You can reach us on Twitter at Be Real Guys. Uh, real as in film real or Be Real Guys at gmail.com. Dear this friend. has been, God damn, this has been, we've, we've been doing them so close together. I feel like I know you again. Oh, don't say that. I love it. Okay. Wait, should we, can we do our sign offs on three? One. Wait, what's mine? Two. I'm Noah Ballard, and I'm building a birdhouse. They assassinated Nebomb. I'm Chance. Goodbye. Three shots, center mass. We've got Richard Cop here. <laughs> <laughs>